Welcome, and thanks for stopping by, Not Your Average Operator. On this next episode, we're really, really excited to have um, not just somebody that we look up to, but someone that I've had the privilege to serve with. Uh, Colonel Kelly Hines is a retired colonel, uh, a pilot most of his life, started off as the infantry. But this is someone who I, not just myself, but I know Mike has also looked up to uh, as a leader. We had the privilege to serve with him in Afghanistan. He was our combatant commander for the task force that we were with. And we've watched firsthand what it was like to serve with a man of his caliber. I'm not exaggerating when I say that uh, Kelly Hines, is a, that name alone is a currency in the aviation world and uh, also in the special operations aviation world as something, or rather the standard of what, of what real leadership is. This is a guy where in the midst of everything that's happening, um, this is the guy where his calmness breeds more calmness and we execute the mission to the highest standard. So we're excited to have him. Uh, we're, we're absolutely uh, ready to sit down with him and talk uh, on this next episode. So anyways, Mike, I know that uh, you've served with him as well. Uh, so what are your thoughts on Colonel Hines? Showing up to Afghanistan as part of uh, the task force, I was there for about a month and then Colonel Hines rolled in as the, as the uh, air commander there with you guys. And getting to know him in the first 15 minutes of our conversation, I was extremely pleased to have him as a boss and as a commander. Uh, knowing that he was former 160th already gave me a comfort uh, for working in, in my arena. Uh, but just speaking with him, he uh, dis always displayed a calm but confident demeanor. And it was blatantly obvious he had a desire to win. And that's all I needed to know and, and, and my team needed to know. And uh, I'm sure our record there can attest to uh, that we definitely won. Uh, one of the best examples I can think of a leader is doing the things that you would never ask other people to do, you know, unless you did it yourself. And I, I, I lost count on how many times I'd show up and plug into ICS and I hear that deep voice on, on there saying, Hey man, what's going on? And he was just in there to fly the mission, not even as the air mission commander, but he just wanted to get out and fly with the boys and uh, get after the enemy. And you can't ask for more than watching a commander put himself in, in the front seat in danger out there doing God's work. So much respect. Quick snapshot of Colonel Hines's bio. He's a native of Whitesboro, Oklahoma. He received his commission from Eastern Central University at Oklahoma. Through the ROTC program, he started off as an infantryman with the Guard. He eventually went on to active duty and became a pilot. He served all across the uh, United States Army. There's too many units to name. The, the biggest one I'd like to highlight is that he spent a significant amount of his time with the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, also known as the Night Stalkers. He's served in, as a commander. He served as a staff officer there. He's deployed all over the world, multiple deployments to... Afghanistan to Iraq. Um, he's been to Egypt. He's been all over the world, all over South America. And he holds multiple degrees, bachelor degrees in history, master's degree in ancient and classical history, and a master's in strategic studies. He's attended the command and general staff college at, and the U.S. Army War College. And as far as awards, I mean, there's just too many to list. But something of note, he does have an air medal with valor, which 
you have to get usually in a in a situation where there's tremendous amounts of duress. Um, and I'll let him speak on that if he ever wants to. Above and above anything else, he's a a loving husband. He's a dedicated father to two great children. And a fun little fact about Colonel Hines is he was one of the pilots of uh, the movie Black Hawk Down, flying those swoopy Blackhawks in the movie. So he's a tremendous example of leadership, and we're very excited to have him on board. Not your average operator. Not your average operator. Not your average operator. Welcome back to Not Your Average Operator with me, Melon McFadden, sitting here with my boys, uh, Raf and Mike, and we're joined tonight by Colonel Kelly Hines. Raf's done a nice little intro there for us. So welcome to you there in uh, Oklahoma. How are you doing, Kelly? Great, guys. Thanks for having me. And how are you going there, Mike? Melon, what's up, brother? Things are going great. Just uh, went out climbing for a couple hours, and uh, man, it's a hot one today, but definitely going to get out and sweat and start to start the Sunday off good. Saw some photos of you up in the trees there. They were, they were looking uh, pretty good, some zip lining and stuff. Yeah, I get my Spider-Man on, man, you know, doing yoga in the trees, you know, getting weird. <laughs> there you go. I've been here with the uh, my two fatties, my little dogs, still waiting for the family, uh, hoping to get them back from Australia within a month or so, but it's sort of kind of dragging. You know, I go those two little uh, beasts to wash down so they're the cleanest hounds on this side of the uh, Indian Ocean. How you doing there, Raf? I'm doing pretty good, mate. Um, just hanging out, doing my prison workouts in my uh, hotel room, uh, doing the quarantine thing, and FaceTiming a ton with uh, my wife. Uh, she's, you know, knocking out quite a bit. Uh, we're doing a lot of pro- well. Before I left, we were doing a lot of projects in the house and out in the property. So, uh, you know, working, working. That. I mean, that's time consuming, man. Thirty-six acres is is uh, it's quite a feat, especially when it's on the side of a mountain. <laughs> Nothing's <laughs> level. It's a great privilege to have uh, basically the guy who you guys both served under in Afghanistan. So, Kelly, how's everything going there in Oklahoma? Uh, you know, Oklahoma's uh, known for the, the song, Oklahoma, where the wind goes roaring down the plane, and that's, that's it's doing it today. I was out running earlier, and a good 20-mile-an-hour wind in my face, and it doesn't make it fun. Just for those viewers and uh, listeners in podcast land, that is actually Kelly's normal uh, vocal range, somewhere down there. The dogs howl. Humans can't really hear him. He's uh, wearing a Darth Vader t-shirt and he's referred to as the Marlboro Man by his men. So imagine that voice barking at you on the radio. I think you'd be uh, standing too when you're ordered. <laughs> All right. So tonight uh, we've, we've uh, had some great feedback from you guys out there, uh, some wonderful reviews and, and emails, and we really take on board everything. Uh, we're very humble and we're very proud to be uh, contributing in some small way. So the, the topic we're covering tonight, we're returning again to uh, things that happen uh, in our background, what's led to us being uh, the people that we are. And we're covering tonight childhood influences. So key influences from your childhood. So I'm going to kick things off here. For me, uh, my childhood was spent, I was a child of the 70s in Melbourne, in uh, the southeast corner of Australia. Um, we're a fairly religious family, a lot of... Uh, Structure provided by stuff like sport, um, school, always down at the tennis club on weekends for probably nine months of the year, family, church, um, my mum and dad, our neighbours. So we had a whole lot of structure in, in our little lives and also joining the scouts and uh, sporting programs at school. There was an outdoor activity program that uh, together with the scouts was certainly a real boost for me when I joined the military. 
So I had all these sort of really good structured uh, programs running, but then, you know, sort of growing up there in the eighties, there was a whole lot of unstructured stuff as well. So I had all the structured time, but then it was just a, a heap of unsupervised play. Like my parents would be at the tennis club on uh, pretty much every weekend when the sun was out, which is quite a lot in Australia. Dad would have a frosty or a frothy or two after a game and the boys would just take off out into the, into the fields and run, run wild. And it was basically get home when the sun came, uh, when the sun went down. And so there was this really good balance between structure with all these organisational stuff and then this unstructured free play. Other stuff, like when I was a teenager, a couple of mates and I were collecting comic books and at the age of 13, we are getting trains all around Melbourne uh, on weekends, like probably covering... 50, 60 miles, sort of 80, 90 kilometre uh, radius around the city, just just unsupervised. And I, I don't know whether think times have changed or not, but I really look to try and have a bit of this structure and unstructure for my kids so that they, you know, they've got to lord of the flies it a little bit with their mates and sort out problems and not always have mum and dad helicoptering in to, to smooth the world for them. So anyway, I had uh, these influences um, family we, we spent a lot of time with family as I grew up my mum was from a big family so I had heaps of cousins around all the time her mum was one of Melbourne's first uh, female lawyers and she was the head of the family I never met any of my other grandparents it was just her when I was a little boy and uh, my dad passed away when I was 11 as uh, I've told you guys and so my mum was this huge uh, figure in my family where there was three boys we were uh, all below 13 and my little sister was three and my mum really taught us self-resilience so after my dad passed, she had to return to teaching part-time to try and get food on the table. And so she had to renew her teaching qualification. So a couple of nights a week, we'd all get home from school, get the train in, and there'd be a big block of uh, mincemeat and some ingredients. And it was, you know, survival of the fittest from the McFadden boys. And we all learned how to, to cook at sort of that age, 10, 11, 12, 13. And uh, that self-resilience certainly carried on and really helped me uh, as an adult. But um, similarly, there was not a lot of money in the family. And so there was mend or make do was the, the way the, the play there. There wasn't, no one was pining for a new bike. We knew there was no money for that kind of thing. There was a famous story where I had a rugby boot where one of the studs had come loose on the ball of the foot. And I just knew mum didn't have any money. And I played with this boot for a few weeks. And my mum found one of my socks that had the stud come through the ball of the foot and cut into my foot. And I just was like, going to keep going with it. And she went, absolutely <laughs> mental at me I think I've gone a bit too far there but um yeah so my mum was this real self-resilience mend and make do and get on with it Raph you had your hand up there man yeah I was just gonna ask you um you said so you would like literally just get on trains with your with your brother your brothers Damien and Hugh yeah that's right so, so just you would just like like live the hobo lifestyle with those two clowns <laughs> just like what was, what was the objective the other end of that train so melbourne's a pretty big city so we've got a big urban sprawl probably i don't know it's probably about five million people now but it's it's a very spread out city australians like having a big block of land a big house but it's really normal for school kids to get trains to school in in melbourne it's everyone get, you sort of get a train into the city and then out to the suburb where your school is and you have all these school concession passes and the, the morning and afternoon schools are just full of kids in school uniforms so we all got the school, the, the train to school, like 90% of my school. And then on weekends, we'd just take ourselves where we needed to go. Like one of my mates was collecting Batman comics. And so he knew where all these secondhand Batman shops were and off we'd go to sort of the four corners of the, the city. Now, 
I think my daughter's 13 now and I, can't, I just could not imagine her, you know, getting on a train 50, 60 miles around a city with no adult. But that, that was how it was then. And, you know, quite a, a safe city, must be said. Anyhow, um, yeah, like you mentioned, another influence there was my younger brother, Hugh. So he and I sort of grew up best mates. We're only 13 months apart. So we were super close brothers and uh, best friends. He was my best man when I got married and I was best man to him. I wasn't able to get there because my little girl Annie had been born and we're in the neonatal unit. So I was best man from uh, two and a half thousand kilometers away, but I was there in, in, in video. But all of this, these influences when I was up to probably about 12, 13, I was very quiet and introverted. And then I got into sport and I uh, got into rugby union, which is a pretty popular sport in Australia. And that really taught me the value of teamwork. And I had a pretty significant change in my life from that point onwards where it was seeking out coaching and coaches that led to later seeking out COs and flight commanders and other influential people to be mentors. There was an ongoing point in my life where I've had club membership ever since then. Like I'm still a member of a rugby club over here in Saudi. My son's playing rugby at my club in South Australia. And so there's this sense of getting engaged in groups to achieve goals. And uh, that team membership and leadership and development and coaching has definitely carried over into military and uh, my business life. So key influences for me again were there my mum, my, uh, my, my family and uh, a lot of the structure I had there, the unstructured stuff of play on my own, my uh, younger brother Hugh and then the sport was a real major turning point and that definitely led to me developing a lot of the traits that have carried me over in the military. You got any comments on any of those resonate with you guys? Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely the sport one. Um, I kind of, a, you talk about rugby and that's what wrestling was for me, right? Because everybody thinks of wrestling as an individual sport and in a kind of a way it is. I mean, there's no excuses. It's just you and another bloke, you're going at it. Uh, win or lose, it's really ultimately up to you. But behind that, behind the veil is if you lose, that's less points for your team, right? Ultimately the team either wins or loses and it's how much you carry forward. And that's always in the back of your mind when you're wrestling. If you lose, it's not just you who's losing. You've literally just taken points away from your team. And that is always in the back of your mind. So kind of that team structure where you literally will sacrifice yourself to try to, you know, gain forward momentum for your team. Uh, so it was... I mean, none of us get ahead in certainly military units on your own, right? That's a myth. It's a total myth even for uh, fighter pilots and Air Force guys. I know it's a myth for snipers as well. Yeah. All right, so... We're going to throw now to Kelly. Kelly, major influences from your childhood, man. Okay. Uh, thanks, Marlon. You know, I was going to attack this a little bit different until you started talking, and, and I realized the environment's got a, a big influence on your childhood as well as people. So I was going to talk about my dad, but real quick about the environment. Like you, I grew up, unlike you, I grew up in southeast Oklahoma, almost in Arkansas in, in the sticks. You know, the closest Walmart was 65 miles away. Graduated with like 18 people who had been – there since kindergarten. I was the only one that didn't start kindergarten in that school. They graduated there. So you could tell, you know, and it's in the mountains. So um, so I spent a lot of time out in the woods. Dad had put a gun in my hand probably the time I was six or seven. And I was allowed to run around out in the woods by the time I was 10 with a 22 or a shotgun. Uh, and you can imagine what you get into when you're doing that uh, at that age. Uh, never shot myself, but, you know, shot plenty of snakes at close range. That, you know, and like you said about your daughter, I would never let my my son do that. He's 22. I've never laid him out in the woods by himself, but you know, that was the environment. So that had a lot to do with turning me into, you know, the infantry guy later in life that I wanted to be John Wayne. Um, as far as people, you know, I got to go with my father. 
Uh, probably not for the traditional reasons most of you would think. Uh, you know, he was born, you know, at the beginning of World War II. Smoking by he was, the time he was 10, dropped out of high school. You know, joined the Air Force, got thrown out of the Air Force. Um, jack of all trades. I think we moved about 10 times before I was nine years old. He would just get tired of the job and move. So, you know, unfortunately, I learned a lot of what he was doing that I didn't want to do. Um, he, he basically, if he saw something that was too hard, he would kind of just do something else. So it, it turned me into not liking to quit and not and not liking to be beat. So, so I, I'm real bad about, I'm, I'm a sore loser and don't like to lose. Um, so I went for that um, because I learned throughout my career, I've learned more from people that were doing something I thought was the wrong way to do it than I did from people who were doing the right thing to do and said I would never do it, even with people that had kids and I didn't like the way they were raising their kids. Um, but probably more importantly, you know, about age five, he had me watching John Wayne and Ollie Murphy movies. You know, and it was just because that's what he was watching. And I turned into a very early age going, I want to be that guy charging up, you know, the Iwo Jima. Uh, so wanted to be that infantry guy, wanted to do that. I told my parents, I think when I was six, I was going to be a soldier. So that started my goal for the rest of my life. Um, never got to thank him for, you know, actually doing that, um, getting me. And he wasn't an Army guy. Um, but I never got to thank him for that because he passed away about the time I was a mid-grade captain. You know, and that's probably the one regret I have is not thanking him for the influences that kind of put me on that path. Uh, and if it wasn't for him, I would not have ended up being a successful soldier that, you know, that I, I think I am today. Um, he was also uh, very supportive of the Army. He, he told me early on, you know, him being a high school dropout, but he insisted I had to go to college and be an officer if I was going to go in the Army. Um, and he, he hounded me about that. He didn't have the money to help pay for it. But he, he told me early on, if you really wanted, you got the drive to do it, you can do it. Um, he even said that about himself. He's like, I never had the drive to succeed that you do. And again, me being a teenager at the time, I was like, whatever, Dad. But I should have actually said, well, you know, I owe that to you for you know showing me that, to, to do that for your family. So so, um, so he would be the biggest influencer. Um, the only other one I could really talk about quick would be my high school English teacher of all people not the coach, you know, which is normal. It was the high school English teacher. And he was my high school English teacher for, you know, all the way through high school, all four grades. Um, but he told me one time, you know, that, that school was teaching to the lowest common denominator. So everybody graduated. Everybody got through it. So it was easy for me. And he knew that. And I think I was a junior. And he told me, he's like, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard. I know you can do it. You're, you're going to have to work harder. Um, at the time, I thought it was BS. But to tell you the truth, it turned me into somebody that can actually write. Uh, and I think a lot of people underestimate the power of being able to communicate in the written word. And that helped me a lot. Now, what I did learn, I have been back to that school. He still works there. And I have managed to get to thank him for the impacts. So at least I did get to thank one of my early influencers. And uh, that's about it. So, uh, Kelly, most most Australians are grow up in the city now, like the heaps of us. But I also spent a fair bit of time in the woods. I was in Scouts. We had a pretty good outdoor activity program at schools. That had family with uh, farmland inland, and we'd go shooting kangaroos and uh, rabbits and whatnot. You know, driving cars we shouldn't have been driving at ages we shouldn't have been driving, and again, sort of unsupervised out in the out in the woods. And I know that that sort of stuff was a was a big influence. Did you guys go, were you hunting in, in, in family groups or with, with mates? What was, what did that look like? Uh, a little bit of both, you know, early on with my dad, he, you know, he would drop me in the woods and go, okay, you go that way. And, and I guess hope that I would be able to find my way back. I have been lost in the woods early on and, you know, taught me not to panic. 
uh, you get older, you start going out with your mates, as you would put it, with friends, uh, you know, camping on the riverbank with fishing poles and guns. Don't take any food with you. You know, start a fire, shoot what you got, and, and eat it. And so, so we did a lot of that. I've even eaten a snake before because that's that's all we got that day. You know, I don't recommend it. It doesn't taste good. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and your dad there, oh, like I know that there's a lot of people, I really think it's a truism, you sort of grow up to be, either exactly like one of your parents or exactly the opposite of one of them. Like, I think that that is, and I know I've certainly learned a lot from bad leadership I've seen in, in the field. So that don't quit thing that you've picked up from your dad there. It's almost like, you know, you, you, you've done the thing that he wanted to do. Would that be a fair way of describing it? That'd be a very fair way of describing it. He would, uh, he would have been very proud of me at the, you know, the, the level I got to. I know when he was talking to the army, he's like, you know, if you make light colonel, you're going to do awesome. And I, and I made full colonel. So, you know, I, I think I, I would have made him proud if he was still around for that. A lot yeah, of that's awesome. And that's, uh, that high school teacher, I, I think all of us have got a teacher or someone who really influenced us in that school environment. Aiming for excellence in the written word, they're really, they're really strong, powerful things to give a kid. What sort of age were you getting that, Kelly? Uh, 15 to 17. So he, about the time I started getting out of high school, that was the only college prep class I had that actually helped was English. His You're class. Wrong. My math classes were not up to going to Oklahoma State like I did. I got can, we get a sh- can we get a shout-out to the teacher? What was his name? Uh, Jim, or Alvin Branscombe. Mr. Branscombe. All right, awesome. Okay, great. So in environment – a father and a high school English teacher. That's really great, Kelly. All right, Raf, Southern California, growing up, what were your uh, childhood influences, man? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting, right? Because everyone thinks Southern California, it's just going to be, you know, surf and, and uh, sunshine. But, uh, man, my life was actually, I can best describe my early childhood as like walking on a razor. And the reason is because the, uh, the first 10 years, uh, the neighborhood that we lived in was really, really, it, it was a rough neighborhood. It was a street called Alaric. It was really, I talked about it, I think, briefly in one of the episodes. Um, Alaric Street was synonymous with, like, gang warfare. I mean, that's the best way I could put it. Uh, and obviously, my dad is an influence of mine, but I'm, I've already talked about him, so I'm not going to talk about him on this one. But he was a huge proponent for me not falling into the gang life because my fear of my dad was a lot healthier than my fear of anything else, you know, cause he carried through with his, with his threats. Not that he, you know, he's a man of few words, but uh, that belt was definitely in use. Um, but anyways, so Alaric street was really notorious. I mean, every day there was cops or firefighters or ambulances. I mean, there was always something going on, right? Somebody getting stabbed. There was literally prostitutes walking the street. I mean, it was drugs everywhere. It was, it was really bad. So my parents did everything they could to move us out of there. And thank God they did when I was about 10. But my first, so I would say my first influence, believe it or not, because even as a kid, I knew um, it was the, the, not that I knew them personally, but I think I understood the level of chaos that I was, that, that I was in, you know, from kindergarten all the way up to about fifth or sixth grade. I understood that I was walking that, that tightrope. And whenever something chaotic happened, meaning like brawls broke out or there was a shooting or whatever, the people that immediately responded were firefighters and police officers. And I, I was always just amazed at like these people that would come into the street or wherever I was um, and just completely like dismantle the chaos. Right. Uh, and I, and I always knew even as a, as a young kid, like I completely respected the badge and I respected these men and women that were coming in and just quit. Cause think about it, dude, you're five, six years old. 
even though it's kind of exciting to watch this melee, you have real fear, right? Because that mob can eventually turn on you or it could turn, turn against you or whatever. So I was always, even though I was kind of not in the melee, I was always like close enough that I could watch all this stuff as a young kid, you know, in my little BMX bike or whatever. But I mean, there was always a sense of fear. And I remember the relief I would get every time a police officer would show up or every time a firefighter would show up. And so like just in the back of my mind, I just, I started associating those people with, you know, kind of the place I wanted to be eventually for the longest time. If you asked me what I wanted to do for a living, I would, I would tell you a police officer because I understood that they were the last line of defense. Right. And I, and I've witnessed real chaos. So I knew that they represented more than just what, you know, not to get political, but we know that they're, they're being bashed right now, but I understood that they were, they are the good, right. They're the good in our society. So I would say that that was a huge influence because it was enough for me to see some goodness in this kind of little, um, microcosm of chaos. Uh, and, uh, and then the next influence, I would say like significant influence would, would be this guy named Paul Fanning. He was my scoutmaster when I was growing up. Uh, and it's, it's kind of got a dark twist, but, um, Paul Fanning was probably the first person outside of my immediate family who was kind of nice to me, you know, just kind of a, an adult figurehead who like genuinely started teaching me leadership skills when I was a, like I started off as a weeblo and he would assign me as like a little squad leader or whatever. And he would actually give us pep talks like, Hey, it's not about you. It's about the people that, that you're in charge of quote unquote. Right. So if, if, you know, if whatever we're getting into, if someone falls behind, you stop and you go back for them or you go, you know, you help them out. And he was influential. And the reason I say it took a dark twist was because I left that troop in, uh, when I was 10 or 11 years old, because we moved to a city called Moore Park. It was about 20 miles away from Oxnard, much better neighborhood. But anyways, I couldn't, I couldn't attend anymore because it was such a long distance. Uh, well, I found out in 2000 or 2001, he was actually indicted for, for being a pedophile. He ended up like sexually abusing a couple of the kids because he was also in the Salvation Army. Um, he was like a lieutenant. He, he did something. He actually was employed by the Salvation Army. He was like a you know, Christian guy or whatever. But Anyways, I, I think about how close I was to this, to this predator. I mean, I used to spend the night at his house, not alone, but I used to spend the night at his house with other kids, you know, because he would take us out to movies. He would, he would, you know, take us out to eat. I mean, he did all these things. And I was, what, at the most, I was probably 10 or 11. Um, but anyways, before you guys ask, you know, not, none of that happened to me. But I, I do often wonder how I would act, right, if some of that had happened. But anyways... The good of that is that he really was one of the first ones that started teaching me about the characteristics of real leadership, right? Putting others before yourself, what the real, you know, uh, the definition of leadership really is. Um, so anyways, that was an influence, even though it kind of took a dark turn and uh, it is what it is. But, uh, and then the last one to be stereotypical was Coach King. So my freshman year, I was playing football and I didn't really like, I mean, I liked it. I liked the excitement of it, but I didn't like the kind of trash talking I didn't like, um, you know, I felt like it was kind of an individual, at least the team at the time, it felt like it was a very individual sport. Everybody was out to try to make these plays and, hey, look at me, look at me. And just by sheer chance, I went to, uh, I went to wrestling practice and it was literally in the middle of like their hell week where they just, it's, and you're going to love this, Melon, it was a smoke fest. Uh, 
if you're Australian, it means something completely different. But if you're American, it's very different in Australia when you hear someone talking about smoking themselves. So apologize for the Australian listeners. Yeah. So laugh about it quietly. Yeah. So it was a it was a pretty significant physical challenge, but Coach King was one of those guys that could like beat you down physically, but verbally he would always inspire you. Right? Like he was just so inspiring, and like you'd be in the middle of a meet, and you're you're literally you know, almost getting pinned or whatever, you're exhausted, you're, you know, in the, the back ends of the match. And I always remember hearing his voice and he would just, you know, he, and he was very specific about the way he spoke to each and every one of us because he knew us, you know, personally. And, um, and well, I think one of the most significant moments was my senior year, man, I, I grew up in a poor family, so I needed money. And I started working as a, as a busboy at a restaurant and I started missing practice. And I remember he showed up to my house and I thought, oh, crap, Coach King is here. He's going to yell at me. And he didn't do that. He literally walked up and said, hey, man, I've missed you at practice. What's going on? Because I was by that time, I was a co-captain of the team. And he said and he basically just sat me down and said, hey, listen, you have an impact on this team. Like people really follow you and I and I care about you. So I, what can I do to get you back up back on the on the team? And I, and I was kind of embarrassed to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm poor and I need money. But he said, listen whatever I need to do, you tell me if there's a bill I can help you pay. If there's, you know, if I can take you to work and pick you up and cause I didn't have a car. Well, I had a car, but it broke down as a 1970 Nova and <laughs> the transmission went out on me. But I mean, he was just like the first, I mean, he was like a father figure. I mean, he was just amazing, amazing man, but he also, you know, he wasn't, I mean, physically he broke us down and uh, some of the stuff he made us do was pretty insane. He grew up in the Michigan wrestling community. And at the time, Michigan and Iowa were rivaling for, how difficult, you know, how challenging it was. I mean, it was like a, a tier one wrestling team. So he had that pedigree and he brought it to us. And it was, I was just by sheer luck, man, I, I crossed paths with this great man. So yeah, Coach King was probably my, my third biggest influence. Go ahead, oh, Melon. That, that reminds me of the, uh, the Christian brother at, at my school, old brother, Frank McCarthy, who uh, took my brother and my younger brother and I under his wing after my dad died. We had a, we had a trip to, Rugby Mecca is uh, New Zealand. Those guys dominate. We did a, a, a tour there and he knew that there wasn't much money that my brother and I had and he just totally stepped in and just quietly, respectfully, didn't make a big deal about it and just really sorted things out for us. So these people who really get your personal story and they treat it with the respect it deserves, that like I know that that effect a man like that can have on a, a teenage boy, like it's profound, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, I still think about him often and just, you know, wonder what other lives he's affecting. Cause he was just such a positive force and he genuinely cared about, you know, every athlete as a yeah, coach, but also just, like I said, a surrogate father. He, he was amazing. Yeah. Right. So a bit of uh, struggles with some criminal slash gang presence there. And your dad we've heard is this really strong authoritarian figure. You've, you've seen the first responders, the, the fire and police, like much respect to those guys, generating order out of chaos and uh, delivering good in society. You've got Paul Fanning as a scoutmaster, and it's a complex story there. He's, he's a strong, powerful influence on you, but you realise he's a man who's dealing with shadows and darkness himself, and yet you can still take the positives out of that. And then Coach King, just un, unreservedly involved in his uh, students, his dishing out physical pain, but uh, verbally inspirational and uh, involving himself in their personal life. That's a really strong uh, group of male influences I'm hearing there, Raf. Right, Mike, childhood 
influences? What were yours, man? Yeah, so I'm actually, I know we kind of rotate each week about, you know, which order we go in, man. And I'm actually really happy that I'm, that I'm kind of going last this week, just listening to all your guys' stories and points of me writing down a lot of people. And I know that we could all go on and on about how hundreds of people have literally influenced our life for the better. Uh, I'm going to start out with kind of when I was a kid. So like with uh, what Kelly was saying, you know, I grew up in the woods with my dad in Western Pennsylvania. I was out at five years old with a cork gun, six years old. I graduated to the 22 and was going out shooting rabbits and squirrels and learning the rules of the road for being a hunter and a woodsman uh, along with fishing. So that's how I grew up. And when you're a kid, that's life. It's either on the jungle gym or playing in the woods, playing army, you know, whatever. Um, that was me too. I was 11 years old and I was at school and there was this thing. It was like, uh, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up type kind of thing? And, uh, in no way, shape or form am I putting any of these down, but Everybody in my class was just like, I want to be a, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a astronaut. I want to be, you know, whatever. There's one girl I'll never forget. She still said, I want to be an anesthesiologist. And maybe she is now. And maybe she's a damn good one. But at that age, I had no idea what that is. Um, but the point was, none of it popped out to me. None of it seemed like it didn't click. It didn't seem big enough. In a, in a sense, I didn't know what that meant um, until my brother. So my brother is seven years old. He's just about to turn 40. He always wanted to be in the military. And all I knew growing up was that there was the army. And that's all he wanted to do was put on a uniform and serve. And I just thought that was, I just thought that was in a way courageous. I didn't even fully understand it, but just knowing that like he wanted to put that uniform on and do something you don't fully understand as a kid. So I really looked up to my brother in a lot of ways and what he wanted to do. And he grew up kind of a problem child and he knew it. Everybody kind of knew it. But the fact that he still wanted to do something bigger than himself really inspired me. Um, you talked about sports. I start going into that career path and being like, okay, I got to get physically ready and, and, and that side of it. So I tried the track team. I actually couldn't swim until I was 14 years old. I couldn't swim hundred feet to save my life. I was scared to death the heights too. Uh, but I was like, I need to face my fears. I need to get out and do this if this is what I inspire to be. And, you know, ultimately led to being in special operations. Um, my track coach, I would run to school every day, which is about four miles. I stopped taking the bus my sophomore year just so I could train. It was an opportunity to train. So I'd wake up and run four miles of school run four miles home. Then I had track practice after. And uh, he pulls me aside one day and um, he's just like, do you not want to be part of this team? And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, you run too much. He's like, I'll kick you off this team if you don't stop it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I was like, I'm here for the team every day, you know, but it was kind of like he was punishing me for running more because I was thinking about the future and what I had waiting for me. So it's kind of training for both. And I only ran the 400. Okay. Like I'm not running the 5k, <laughs> but um, I ended up left leaving the team because I wouldn't say I quit, but it just wasn't a team environment. So I went over to the swim team and uh, the first day I, I tried out, it was a land and water workout. And I knew I sucked at swimming, but I got in the damn water and kept swimming. 
And I just got nothing but flack and no support. There was not one person that was like, hey, man, I'm really proud of that you're here. You're trying. Like, it was just complete crap. And I was like, this is not a team. This is a, a group of individuals who don't give a damn about anybody else. And I didn't go back. And I'm not ashamed to say it, man. So I literally just start teaching myself how to swim. I was like, I need to figure this out. And then I became like this other group and sea cadets. And I kept learning how to do things with the people that I wanted to be around and they wanted to be around me. Again, like true, honest teamwork. Um, with that, through high school and growing up, the teachers and other students weren't really pulled into military service. I had two teachers who actually listened to this podcast. Uh, Bill Cardiff was my um, uh, one teacher. He was an Army veteran. And Carl Huzar, a Vietnam veteran. He worked on uh, Cobras in Vietnam when they came out. These two guys would allow me to stay after school and sit there and talk about military service, events that were going on in life, what, what service really meant to them, what it meant to the veterans. Uh, and it really just showed me the true purpose of a person that's willing to wait, raise his right hand and do something bigger than himself. Everybody else was concerned about partying, going out on the weekend, hey, you going to this, going to that. And these guys really showed me that, hey, there's something bigger out there. When 9-11 happened, Flight 93 actually flew over my, my school that morning and crashed in Somerset about 40 minutes south. My whole school went into a panic. And there was teachers and students just running around and um, saying, turn the TVs off. You can't watch this. And I was sitting in and I stayed there all day. And Carl Huzar came into the classroom and turned the TV on and he said, you need to watch this. This is history. And this is going to be the next chapter of this generation. And I walked into the hallway and uh, one of these teachers looked at me and goes, hey, Mike, I think you're going to get your chance. And I just felt it. And I was like, that's it, man. There, this is my calling and this is what I want to do. So I still talk to those guys till this day. I call them. Uh, they listen, like I said, they listen to this podcast and, uh, you know, I could go down a list of my brother, my uncle Bobby. I've talked about being in a Korean war POW in conversations I talk, but as far as childhood and really shaping these things, um, education, you know, pushing me to do something that was bigger than myself and seeing how these men, true men carry themselves being humble, having humility, demonstrating, you know, calmness and times of panic and true leadership really inspired me, man. And I was just like, that's, that's who I want to be one day. And now that I've been in for 14 years, I guess I'm now part of the senior leadership and I have guys looking at me and I'm able to take these, these lessons and, apply them and share them with these guys kind of pay it forward and uh Mike, I've, got a, I've got a question for you mike these two teachers mr cardiff and who's are did you take classes with them which classes and how old were you uh so carl who's was my government uh, teacher and history teacher and bill cardiff was my uh what was he my uh world cultures class so it's kind of weird that uh, things we've talked about in those classes, I've gone overseas and experienced firsthand, and we've had many conversations 
So some of the ambassadors in other countries have heard of Bill Cardiff and Carl Huzar's classes because we sit and have a few frothies over it. But how, uh, how old how old were you when you had those classes, Mike? Uh, one was in ninth grade. The other one was in my senior year of high school. Yeah, interesting hearing this same sort of period, like this the tail end of high school, and some some key sort of male authority figures or examples that 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 have have touched a few of us. Yeah. So yeah, they, they were they were there for me every day, man. When you go to your guidance counselor and they're like, "Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up?" and I, and I gave them my answer, and they just look at me and go, "Yeah, I don't know what to tell you." And I'm like, "All right, well, can I work out more? No, you already have gym class. Can I swim more? No, you can't do that either." I'm like, "All right, well, have a good day. I'm gonna go down and sit and talk to Mr. Carter from Mr. Huzar for a little bit." You know, I mean, but they were there. They were willing to take me under their wing and show me something that was there that uh, was very special. I had a math teacher around the same era. He was uh, actually one of my best mates, dad. He was the head of maths. And he was the head of the aquatic program at the school. Taught me calculus, ran some calculus down my head that I definitely could not re reproduce now. But he, he was one of those teachers. He would just take you aside and put like a half hour, just one-on-one -on -one straight into you. And shout out to Mr. Butcher there in Melbourne. He's a great man leading the way. So interesting, Mike, you're, you're talking there. There's quite a bit of similarity here. We're hearing some wood stuff with fishing and hunting with your dad. Got your brother being a bit of an example, despite having a bit perhaps of a, a rough childhood. You got some sports there, somewhat similar to Raf. I didn't say uh, where he, he, he saw some individualism he didn't like. I didn't say I, I wasn't into sport at all until I was 13. I really didn't like like this, the jock culture, you guys would call it in the US. I, I didn't like that at all. And I sort of turned, turned that around. And so you went looking around there and got some sea cadets. And I was in the Sea Scouts and I'm hearing other people in uh, some uh, scout, scouts that were rough. And then uh, key teachers providing a bit of an example. They're calm in a time of panic. Like that's definitely... Like that memory we all have of 9-11 and people taking firm action and giving you a, a pathway at that time, just totally key. I think. Yeah, it, it, just, just to speak, you know, I, I really, people really ask me to as kind of a side note, but it really correlates. And I, Mel and I just talked about it the other day, but um, when 9-11 happened, you know, I mean, we all have a story. And some people ask me to this day, like, what was your best, what's your best memory from your time in service? And honestly, my best memory isn't even from my time in service. It's September 12th, 2001, when I woke up the next day and there was American flags everywhere and there was no Democrats, Republicans, there was no anything. It was just everybody woke up as Americans and there was such a sense about self and patriotism and love for other people. Um, I, I still hold that very close to myself. Um, but it was Mr. Rogers that always said, always look for the for the people who want to help because those are like the true the true people that like the true examples of like what we were created for and like raf said the firemen the police officers the people in the military the medics you know even the people that are lining up to give blood you know look for those people Hey, you know, I found it interesting too. You brought up the we've all been scouts. I'm wondering if our early time in the scouts and getting all the bling had something to do with us uh, going on to be in the military. You know, Napoleon once said, uh, "You get soldiers to do a lot for a little bit of a little bit of color on their uniform," and it seems like we all started at that that point in life. Yeah, you get a badge for tying your shoes. Like 
I tie a pretty damn good shoe. You know, he takes some pride in it. <laughs> and real quick, sir, did you um, – you wrestled, didn't you? No, I played basketball in high school. So did my, you really? Yeah, we didn't have but basketball and baseball. We were too small. I mean, the entire – you know, all the boys in high school were all on the team because we had to have them all play to do it. Yeah, so no, no, no wrestling, no football. Unless you count wrestling with, you know, guys in bars that I shouldn't have been in because I was too young, that kind of thing. Right on. So interesting, some stuff there around, uh, like three of us being in scouts, three of us hunting, a lot of us having uh, teachers, uh, parents and also sports some really strong stuff there and, and I'm, I'm sure that there's no uh mystery in any of this you see the best education programs in the world and raising of young boys and girls have a mix of all these different outlets that the, the, the great schools or education programs have like the music they have the drama they have the public speaking some some sort of outdoor activity sporting plus the academic like it's not i know when i was 15 i needed a, a few outlets to get me through that sort of key periods at the end of high school. You know, I'd sort of drag myself through the school week to get to rugby training on uh, Tuesday night. I love Tuesdays. And then Thursday was rugby. And then Friday was only one day until the game. And, you know, sort of get through the academics in between when I had to. Jump in, Raph. Hey, Malin, you said that three, three of us uh, did the hunting. I kind of did hunting too, except it was more like Hunger Games. I might, you know. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't shooting at squirrels and also uh, – public service announcement for any PD listeners, Melon just shot at kangaroos because the kangaroos were attacking them. So I don't want to get any hate mail over that. Australia gets some flack because we're the only country in the world we eat all the animals in our national coat of arms. But the kangaroos in Australia are actually in plague. They're in plague proportions because they never used to be farmland. And so these things are like multiplying. And so, you know, there's, they're only hunted humanely. <laughs> Kelly? I was just going to throw out there, you know, Raph would have been one of those guys from, that came to visit us from the city that I'd have taken snipe hunting and, and left him in the woods at night with a bag. <laughs> <laughs> and he would have taken you for an urban experience and left you down some back alley with a bag. Equally bad. <laughs> yeah, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. Oh, God. All right, so uh, a bit of a recap there for uh, Melon. There was structure and also unstructure. So if you're raising kids these days, really think about, you can hear out of the, the four of us here, there's a lot of strong stuff around people providing structure, but I'm a huge believer in letting the kids play and letting them go. And you're hearing that in all four of us as well with the hunting and uh, Woodstop stories. My mum provided the example of self-resilience and men to make do. My brother was just uh, my best mate the whole way through. And I got that uh, teamwork and leadership and seeking, seeking coaching and mentoring out of sport. Kelly, out in the environment, uh, independent shooting at the age of 10. His dad, like he, he learned maybe how not to do things and he's, and he's pushed through with a don't quit attitude and he's become someone that his dad would really respect if he could meet him now. High school English teacher, uh, aim for excellence and perfect the written word and that just carries across all areas of life, I think, as an adult. Raf. Uh, took some uh, hard sidesteps there with a possible criminal uh, life and his dad being that strong uh, example, seeing those first responders ste stepping in and uh, providing an example of good. Paul Fanning, the scout master, so developing leadership, but also there's a person there with some dark side. Coach King, just a 
putting himself out there for his students and uh, giving them that, that verbal inspiration. Mike out there in the woods of Pennsylvania, hunting and fishing again with his dad, learning a bit from his older brother, who, despite having a rough childhood, was giving an example. Searching around the different sports and not finding anything with teamwork until he hit the sea cadets. Uh, two teachers who really laid it out for him there, Mr. Carter from the World, World Culture and Mr. Huzar with the government and history. And funny, I think those have both come up in uh, previous podcasts and providing an example of calm in a time of panic. So what are your influences? Who impacted you in your childhood? Uh, I hope some of these stories resonate with you and, and we'd love to hear similar stories and we'd also love to hear ones that are different. You can uh, reach us as always on the emails, not your average Mike 77 or average Raf and not average Paul at gmail.com you can uh throw us a line we'll forward any uh mail on to colonel kelly hines a, a great man and we're very proud to have had him along for this episode and as always share where you think there's uh, value throw a review down and uh, give us a like and until next time take care from not your average operator